dear congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, it's extremely difficult to find one word or one idea that captures the ethos or the character of the Western world. We are, after all, a mixing pot of many different cultures, especially here in Canada. There are many different sorts of peoples here. And each different group that has come has its own culture. It's got its own art. It's got its own cultural norms. It's got its own etiquette and so on. So it's extremely difficult to identify one idea that really unites us all, that really describes all of us in a word. But if we think about it, there's perhaps something in the word freedom. Something in the word freedom that describes Canadians. Freedom is, after all, one of our highest ideals as a nation. It is in our national anthem. We are the true north, strong and free. So many of those who immigrated here, they also sought out freedom from whatever it was that they were facing back home. There's a problem, though, with this word, freedom, and that's because the meaning of the word freedom has been traded in for the meaning of the word autonomy. Now, this morning we learned the word antithesis. Here's another one, autonomy. It means a law unto myself. A law unto myself. Freedom for many means a total lack of oversight. It means for many, life lived on a whim, without guidance and without purpose. But that's not how God speaks about freedom in His Word. That's not how He reveals freedom to be in truth. When God speaks about freedom, it's always freedom for a purpose. And so I bring you the Word of God under the following theme that good works are necessary because Christ has freed us. We'll see three, three parts to this, that Christ has freed us for Himself, that Christ has freed us for freedom, and Christ has freed us that we might glorify God. Now, the Heidelberg Catechism, it takes great pains to establish for us that salvation is by grace alone through faith alone. It begins this already in Lord's Day 1 when it says that Christ has fully paid for all my sins and has freed me from the power of the devil. Again, in Lord's Day 7, the Catechism asserts that God has granted all the benefits of my salvation only for the sake of Christ's merits. Once more, in Lord's Day 11, we're told that Jesus saves us from all our sins and that salvation is not to be found in anyone, anywhere, or anything else. Salvation by grace through faith is a constant refrain of the Heidelberg Catechism. And then you come to Lord's Day 24, and there you read that good works are necessary. There in answer 64, it says, it's impossible for those grafted into Christ by true faith not to bring forth fruits of thankfulness, which means that although we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, faith never comes alone. True faith, it has consequences. It has fruits in our lives, which are good works. And that's the point that the catechism is making, that you need to see the fruits. And so, from Lord's Day 24, then we come to Lord's Day 32, the catechism for this afternoon. 
The first question of this Lord's Day asks, since we have been delivered from our misery by grace alone, through Christ, without any merit of our own, why must we yet do good works? I'll paraphrase that question. Since salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in what sense are good works required of us? Well, nowhere in the answer to this question does the catechism say that our works can be part of our salvation. In fact, if, if you noticed right above our Lord's Day, it says this is the third part of our catechism. This is the part on our thankfulness, certainly distinct from our salvation. Our salvation in Christ Jesus is not the focus here. No, the answer to this question, as we find in Lord's Day 32, it begins as it always must. It begins with redemption by Christ's blood and with renewal into His image by the Holy Spirit. That's how all Christian ethics, that's how all Christian morals must begin. It always has to start this way. The gospel comes first. Christ has fully redeemed us. Only after that fact is established can we move on to the effect that that has in our daily lives, that by the power of the Spirit we're being made into the image of Jesus Christ. And the purpose of all this is that God might be glorified, that we ourselves might be assured of our faith by its fruits, and that we might win others for Christ. This begs the question, though, from what exactly have we been delivered from? Galatians 5 verse 1 points out that our redemption is freedom from slavery. We've been freed from the power of the devil. We've been freed from the dominion of the sinful passions of our flesh. Those things that you would find in question and answer 87, which we read. We've been freed from slavery to idolatry, adultery, and things like that. Christ has freed us from those chains of prison. He's freed us from bondage by purchasing us with His precious blood. And this liberation has justified us before God. We are now justified in God's eyes. Now, where Christ died for sins once for all, He also then renews all those whom He died for by His Spirit. As it says in Lord's Day 26, that means the Spirit makes us more and more like our Savior Jesus Christ. Well, besides deliverance from the devil and our flesh, there's also another aspect to our freedom, to our liberation as well. Christ has also freed us from the law. That is, He's freed us from the idea that we can earn our salvation by obedience to the demands of the law. In Galatians 5, verse 3, Paul says, I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. To accept circumcision was to accept this idea that one had to believe in Jesus Christ but also obey certain parts of the Old Testament Jewish law in order to be saved. That's what Paul is fighting against here. And there were, there were some in that time who were teaching that very thing and they were convincing the Galatian church to come along with them. These were the Judaizers and I would say that Paul is more than a little upset about those who teach that circumcision is necessary for salvation in Christ. And he's telling the Galatian church to listen up, and he's warning them that if they wrongly believe that if they accept one part of the law, that they will be saved by fulfilling that part of the law, that if they wrongly believe that they need to fulfill it in addition to Christ's work, 
they will in fact cut themselves off from Jesus Christ himself. I'll read verses 2 through 4 again. There Paul says, Look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, that's one part of the law, Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. You are severed from Christ. You who would be justified by the law, you have fallen away from grace. What does that mean? What does that mean to be severed from Christ? Well, to be severed from Christ is to be under the covenant curse. With no hope of salvation, all who rely on works of the law are under a curse, as Paul says elsewhere in the same book. That's what we've been freed from. We've been freed from the idea that we can earn salvation by works. And that's freedom because anybody who depends on salvation by works can expect one of two outcomes in their lives. If you accept salvation by works, you will pursue piety and holiness but it will be coupled with an anxiety that it's never enough. You can never be sure that your good works are enough to earn your salvation, your justification from God. That's Martin Luther before he understood the book of Romans. On the other hand, if that's not you, then you, there's this total despair in the knowledge that we can never live up to God's law. So we would try and fail, try again, and fail, and eventually we would realize we cannot live up to God's law. And if we accept this idea that we must earn our salvation by works, either in part or in full, we will end up despairing of our ability to obey the whole law. So Christ has freed us not only from the devil, not only from our own sinful flesh, but also from relying on the law for our salvation. And since Christ has delivered us in this way, He's become our new master. Yes, our Savior is none other than the one who chose to love us first and chose to die for us. There's not a lot of masters, masters that would die for their servants, let alone masters that would die for rebels, let alone masters that would die for former servants of the devil. But Christ graciously chose to do so. It was His choice and He made it. So to have Christ as master is to be under grace. It is to be under that gracious choice of Christ to save us from the devil, as Paul implies in Galatians 5, verse 4. And that's a merciful thing, because if we would have been delivered from the devil, if we would have been delivered from our own flesh and from the law as well, but not been put under a new master, we would indeed have to be a law unto ourselves. We would have to be autonomous. It would have to be that way. That would simply be a new tyranny, though. But by placing us under the rule of Christ, we are now under a rule in which we can truly be free. We are now free from the devil, free from the dominion of our sinful nature, and free from the fear of condemnation. And having been thus freed, we're now under the dominion of our perfect Lord and Savior, Jesus the Christ. This is all part of having the faith that the Holy Spirit works in our hearts. And this faith, it's not something that's dead. It's not something that, that's static or that never, never moves. Faith is something that lives. 
Faith is something that acts out what it believes. To have faith is to be spiritually alive, which is why by faith we present ourselves to God not as those who are dead, but as those who have been brought from death into life. As Romans 6 verse 13 points out, Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments of righteousness. True faith works, and it works itself out in accordance with the image of Christ. This is the Spirit's work, and it's called sanctification. When the Spirit sanctifies us, He works in such a way that it is not we who live, but Christ who lives in us. So this life, the new life that we live, we live it by faith in the Son of God. Well, in our second point, we'll speak about what that dominion of the Son of God, what Christ's dominion looks like. And we'll see that Christ has freed us for freedom. Galatians 5 begins like this. For freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. We've been freed for freedom. And that sounds really obvious, but, but Paul is emphasizing this point because Christ has not delivered us just to become our new tyrant. Tyrants, they always impose their will upon the people without regard for their well-being. And Christ is the ruler of all creation. But he's no tyrant. The manner of his rule is very different from the rule of worldly leaders. He instructs us and he teaches us. And that is how he rules us. And I want to read with you from the Canons of Dort, chapter 3 and 4, article 16. You can find that on page 579 if you would like to follow along. We'll just read the whole article. It's titled, Man's Will Not Taken Alive, but not taken away, but made alive. Man's will not taken away, but made alive. There we read that man, through his fall, did not cease to be man, endowed with intellect and will, and sin, which has pervaded the whole human race, did not deprive man of his human nature, but brought upon him depravity and spiritual death. So also this divine grace of regeneration does not act upon men as if they were blocks and stones, and does not take away the will and its properties, or violently coerce it, but makes the will spiritually alive, heals it, corrects it, pleasantly and at the same time powerfully bends it. As a result, where formerly the rebellion and resistance of the flesh fully dominated, now a prompt and sincere obedience of the Spirit begins to prevail, in which the true spiritual renewal and freedom of our will consists. And if the wonderful maker of all good did not deal with us in this way, man would have no hope of rising from his fall through his free will, by which he, when he was still standing, plunged himself into ruin. So we read there that God does not treat us as though we have no mind. He does not treat us as though we have no will of our own. We are not, so to speak, merely tools in his hand, though oftentimes we use that that terminology in order to remain humble before God, he nevertheless treats us like people who have a will, people who have intelligence. He treats us as we are, moral creatures who make choices between right and wrong. 
creatures that have a will. So Christ rules patiently, and He rules by healing and correcting our sinful nature, and He works pleasantly and powerfully upon our wills. That's how Christ rules us. And having been thus freed unto freedom then, our new life is one that's characterized by deliverance. We can never progress in the Christian life without first recognizing that Christ has saved you from your sins. Any other effort, no matter how well meant, is merely self-willed religion. But Christianity, the true religion, starts at the cross with the confession that we are saved not by our own merits, not by our own work, but by Christ's death and resurrection. And this is why when God gave the Ten Commandments and when we read them every week in the worship service, we start as follows, not with the, command, the first commandment, but with this, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. God says, I am your Redeemer. That comes first. And so this deliverance then characterizes the life that we are now called to live. Now, if we live in freedom under the dominion of Christ, what, is that, what does that look like? Well, question and answer 87 gives a short list of the things freedom does not look like. Freedom does not look like idolatry, adultery, thievery, greed, drunkenness, slander, or robbery. No one who lives under the dominion of these things is truly free. And we can see how each one of these things leads back into slavery. For example, a life of greed makes us slaves to money, makes us slaves to material goods. Poor and rich alike are tempted to be slaves to greed. Greed says, I always want more. I want more money. I want a better car. I want a bigger house. I want more stuff. The list goes on and it goes on and it goes on. It never ends. It enslaves us. To give just one more example, a life of unchastity leads to its own kind of slavery. Always seeking after new partners, always moving on to somebody new, never satisfied with one person. It leads to porn addictions, it leads to broken marriages, it leads to financial troubles and drug abuse. It's not hard to see how these things, they lead back into slavery, the very thing from which Christ has freed us. But a life of freedom, it looks very different from that. The fruit of the Spirit found in Galatians 5, verse 22 and 23 shows us what a life of freedom looks like. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And if we meditate on these things, we can see how a life of self-control or we can see how a life lived out of love those are not enslaving things. God warns us in Galatians 5 to never again submit to a yoke of slavery. The Galatian church was in serious danger of once again submitting to slavery. And they were about to submit to what we now call legalism. Legalism is the idea that our salvation comes in part from obedience to the law. We've mentioned it already in this sermon, but the name for it is legalism. And I don't think I'm stretching it too far to say that there's probably a little legalist in all of us. 
How many of us, for example, find it easier to pray when we've lived a day that we consider to be holy? When we haven't broken God's commands too much, or when we've helped out a poor person, things such as these, it's easy to come before God's throne then in prayer. But not all our days are like this. Sometimes we have days where we fall into sin, even serious sins, sins of which we are deeply ashamed. And then how easily do we bow our heads in prayer before God and seek forgiveness and seek the strength that only He can provide? Or will we wait until we think we've lived another day that's holy enough to come before God's throne in prayer and then ask for forgiveness? It's the attitude of a legalist. That's how they think. Although a legalist will avoid certain works of the flesh, like sexual immorality or impurity, they are all but guaranteed to submit to enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalry, dissension, division and envy, as Galatians 5, verse 20 and 21 teaches. The legalist in us wants to know and evaluate just how, just how pious we are acting, especially in comparison to those around us. Now, that's one extreme view of good works. The other one is called antinomianism. That's another one which we must always be on guard against. Antinomianism means against the law. Antinomians say that no good works are necessary in the life of the Christian, that the law is completely obsolete, that we don't need to read it and we don't need to consider it. The antinomians are very likely to submit to the slavery of autonomy, the law unto ourselves. And that's slavery because without the law of God instructing us, we will obey the sinful passions of our flesh. And we can see how this works if we see the world around us. We can see that the world is enslaved. The government, businesses, social media platforms, they're enslaved to the latest popular agenda regardless of its moral value. They have to comply with whatever agenda is being currently championed. And just, like soon, in June, it will be called Pride Month. It's typically the month they have set aside for that, but there are those business owners and store managers who will call it Public Relations Month. They won't call it by its name, but they will call it Public Relations Month. And that's because there's a whole lot of people out there, even outside the church, who don't really buy into the agenda that's being pushed. But they toe the line because they're enslaved to fear of being canceled. They're afraid of losing political influence. They're afraid of losing business and money. They're enslaved to fear. And that's what autonomy leads to. All the rest of the works of flesh that are listed in Galatians 5, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, idolatry, sorcery, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. If we submit to antinomianism, we will be in danger of this kind of slavery as well. And that's why it's so important to understand the role of good works in our lives rightly. Legalism says that Jesus is not a complete Savior. Antinomianism says that God's not as holy as He claims in His Word. Neither one is acceptable for a Christian. For the Christian, the Bible teaches us to exercise our freedom under Christ's dominion, that is, to use the freedom that we've been given to exercise the fruit of the Spirit. This fruit is true freedom, Paul says. 
because there is no law that restricts the exercise of this fruit. Now, these two extreme views, legalism and antinomianism, they actually have the same root. They are, as it were, symptoms of the same spiritual illness. See, when we're spiritually ill, we tend to look at ourselves and we ask questions like, what do I have to do? What's the least I have to do? Or what's the most I have to do? They're trying to set the boundaries of obedience to God. But that's the wrong attitude. It is completely the wrong attitude. We must look instead to Jesus Christ. To the legalist, we say that Christ has fully paid for all our sins and has performed perfect righteousness, which may become ours only by faith in Him. And to the antinomian, we preach that the Holy Spirit sanctifies us to be made more and more in the image of Christ, a reality that works itself out in good works, which God Himself has prepared for us to do. So let us then exercise our freedom, a freedom which has been earned by Christ and aims towards the glory of God. And we come to our third point, that Christ has freed us that we might glorify God. Well, we've been freed for a purpose. Since that's the case, we have to ask, what is that purpose? The Catechism lays it out for us that we show ourselves thankful to God and He may be praised by us. This is the chief aim. This is the primary aim of good works in our lives, of our freedom. Then the exercise of this freedom may have two further results. First, that we ourselves are assured of our faith by its fruits. And second, that by a godly walk of life we might win our neighbor's for Christ. We've been freed so that we might show thankfulness to God for His benefits. In order to do this, we need to be reading God's holy law so that we know how to walk a thankful life before Him. We don't read it as though works of the law can save us, as we've already established, but we read it so that we can understand how, how far we've fallen and so that we can understand how gracious God is in sending His own Son to come and pay for the debt that stands against us. The depths of our gratitude coincides with our awareness of our own fallen nature. As Christ says of the woman who washed his feet with her hair, that her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little, loves little. And we all have much sin in our lives that needs forgiveness. As we realize it, then so too does our gratitude towards God grow? Well, inasmuch as the Scriptures teach us the depths of our sin and also the way of our salvation, so too does it teach us about the true worship of God. Just as we need the Scriptures and the Holy Spirit working in our hearts to lay bare our sins, so also we need the very same Scripture and Spirit to show us how God wants to be worshipped. Since we've been delivered from slavery... We must never again submit to slavery. And we have to be clear about this. All self-willed worship is submitting to slavery. The only way that we may freely worship God is in obedience to His Word. That's why our liturgy, our order of worship, is modeled the way that it is. All the elements of our worship can be found in the Scriptures as God-pleasing worship. And if we were not to listen to God's word in this matter, we would again be plagued with the anxiety of the legalist. 
we wouldn't know if it was good enough, and we would never know, or the antinomianism. And we would say, does it really matter anyways? Does God care as long as our hearts are in the right place? But God instructs us about worship in His holy word. And so by faith in Christ, we worship God with our freedom. Thanks and praise to God are the good works to which we have been called. And these good works, they have an effect on both our lives and the lives of people around us. For our part, we will be assured of the genuineness of our faith if we see that God has worked it in us to do good works. God graciously grants us this benefit so that we might have peace and confidence concerning our own salvation. And Scripture gives us this illustration in John 15. To see good fruit in our lives means that we have been grafted into the true vine, that we've been grafted into Jesus Christ. And this will inspire us to even greater works, knowing that God has begin to work, begun to work in us and that he will complete the work that he has begun to work. In the exercise of our freedom, it, it may also have an impact on our neighbors as well. That's why it's important not to go out of the way to shut the world out of our lives. We can't cloister ourselves away from the entire world. Sometimes God does put people on our path so that we might share the hope that we have with them. Now, occasionally, actions are more powerful than words. Occasionally, the, the good works that God has called us to do are more powerful than the words that we could say. Some people are not very quick to listen with their ears, especially this day and age when people quibble about the meaning of the word truth. And it's hard to even communicate with the people around us. So it's hard to use, use words sometimes, but they can see with their eyes. And it's not so easy to reject the truth of the gospel when your neighbors can see that you yourself are an honest worker, a loving mother, a responsible tenant, or a diligent student. They can see it, and it's not easy to deny the truth of Christianity when they can see that. It's not so easy to deny the fact that Christianity is characterized by freedom. We are free from the fear of death, free from the fear of disease and illness, free from the fear of the future. So our neighbors may ask us what the source of our freedom is. Maybe not in so many words. They probably ask, why are you the way that you are? It's one way it could come. Or what's different about you? That's an opportunity to share with them the hope that you have in Jesus Christ, why you hope, and, and the content of the Bible. And in so doing, we may be able to bring others into the freedom that we enjoy. So then let's live freely under the dominion of Christ and to the goal of glorifying God. Amen.